Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 49, verse 13. We are studying the 12 tribes uh, of Israel, the sons of Jacob. We're going to look at two tonight, Zebulun and Issachar. And hopefully you've enjoyed the last few ones. So far, I think my favorite has been Judah. Um, but uh, I like these two as well. And this may... There we go. And so we've looked at Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah, the first four of Leah's sons. Uh, and we're going to jump down and finish out Leah's sons with her ninth and tenth son, uh, Issachar and Zebulun. We're going to look at Zebulun first and then Issachar. But in Genesis 49, verse 13, remember, Jacob, at the end of his life, you know, who is also called Israel, brings all of his sons. Now, they're in Egypt uh, because of Joseph's reign there, brought them down, and he's, uh, I think he's 147 years old, if my memory serves right, uh, and he brings them all to his deathbed, and he prophesies over each one, and some is good prophecy, some is not so good prophecy. And uh, we've seen that Reuben and Simeon and Levi get passed over for the birthright, the inheritance of the double portion of land, the priesthood, and the power of the patriarch. Uh, And it comes to Judah. Well, also then we learn that Levi, he redeems himself. Jacob's prophecy to Levi and Simeon was that you would never have an inheritance, but because Levi later stood with Moses... God says to them, well, your inheritance will now be me. So the curse was still done. It wasn't undone. But Levi gets the priestly portion. Judah gets the power portion. And then Joseph's sons, which we'll talk later, Joseph's two sons will get the the largest land lot. They'll get the double portion there. So it kind of gets divided up. So we're going to look now in Issachar and Zebulun. So let's look at the prophecy there in Genesis 49, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat uh, in front of you. He says, on his deathbed to these ninth and tenth sons, Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven or a dwelling place for ships. And his flank shall be towards Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey. Isn't that something? Thanks, Dad. You know, that might be a different word in today's society, right? But Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepholds or burdens. And when he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Okay, so here we find the symbols of these sons, Zebulun and Issachar. And on the high priestly uh, breastplate, you'll find Zebulun down here as a ship. And then you're going to find Issachar over here as the donkey. All right, so we have a ship and a donkey. Uh, and Zebulun, he's the sixth son of Le- uh, Leah, the tenth son of Jacob. His name means habitation or dwelling. And that's from that verse. Look, he said, he shall be a dwelling for ships or a haven for ships. And it's the same thing that his mom said uh, when he was uh, born, that when she conceived again and bore him a sixth son, Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell or abode with me because I've borne him six sons. Now remember, their whole family was you know, kind of jacked up, and so she thought this other son would merely make her husband love her and dwell with her. So she named her son Dwelling. All right? Uh, we don't hopefully do that in our today's context, but that's where they were. And so she named him Dwelling. 
But then Jacob prophesies over him. He says, he'll dwell. Look how he uses his name. Dwell, Zebulun, dwelling, will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a dwelling for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. So the Holy Spirit prophesies over him, uh, and that's all we really know. Uh, it's kind of interesting. These two sons, it's kind of like uh, some of the uh, apostles. You don't really know a whole lot about them, and these two sons are obscure. So we're going to actually do a little bit more digging tonight. So kind of keep your fingers loose on the Bible. We're going to follow from uh, some uh, verses. If you follow along with me, I'm going to really go to go mining for some gold, okay? Because this is it's going to be good, though. So he says, hey, you're a dwelling, and you're going to dwell with ships. Well, you're in Israel. There's not a whole lot of shipping going on. We've got the Mediterranean Sea on the left, right, on our map. Uh, if I can go forward a little bit. Got the Mediterranean Sea on the left, and you've got you know the Dead Sea and the Jordan going up to the Sea of Galilee at the top. And so that's kind of where we find these guys. And so nothing's known of his personal history. He has three sons, and all we know that he was a part of that scheme that sold his brother into slavery. He kind of drops off the map. But then we have the tribe. Okay, so that family grows and becomes a big tribe, and they follow come out of the Exodus with Moses. Uh, and the tribe of Zebulun follows Moses into uh, the promised land. Now, one cool thing about Zebulun, remember we said on, if this is the tabernacle, you know, this big tabernacle, this tent of meeting, uh, where the uh, holy place is that God would tell them how to build on Mount Sinai, there was only one door in, and that was on the east, and that's where Moses' tent uh, outside that front door where Moses and Aaron and the high priests would uh, camp their, their, their selves. And then there was the eastern tribes. And the eastern tribes would lead the charge through the promised land. Obviously, the main tribe that would do that would be Judah because, you know, they're warriors. They're awesome. The lion, the tribe of Judah. But also, these obscure guys that we don't really know anything about, Issachar and Zebulun. They get this unique place of honor with Judah. It's kind of interesting, for someone that you don't hear much about, God really honors. You don't hear much about these two tribes, either good or bad. And as I was thinking about that, I think about those unseen saints, you know, in the church house, right? Uh, that, that God knows those people that you don't, they're not on the front of the stage, they're, they're, you don't hear about them in the newspaper, Right, and you don't you don't hear about them on the stage, and you're not seeing them in the wanted ads. You know, crime went to jail this week, right? Criminal record, uh, but they're there. They're solid, and God honors these guys with Judah at the eastern gate. Okay, let's talk about that tribe as they're going into the promised land. Uh, they numbered fifty-seven thousand four hundred men. They became the fourth largest tribe as they left Mount Sinai. They joined Judah and Issachar and led the people on the east side of the tent. And uh, they're not even recorded, even like their father, Zebulun, even in the wilderness time. You don't hear them about doing anything stupid, but you don't really hear anything about anything great either. They're kind of unknown, but their name means dwelling, their symbol was a ship, and their stone uh, was emerald green. All right? And that's kind of something. Remember I said the breastplate, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies later on as they made it, Go in the Holy of Holies, and on his breastplate, his vest, right, would be these stones symbolic of taking the prayers and petition of every tribe into the holy place. And that would be Zebulun. They were represented on the green. So let's talk about the territory and go back to this. All right, 
So they get to the end of the wilderness time, and they're about with Joshua and Moses to go into the promised land. Well, Moses is about to die, so Moses uh, ends up praying a blessing over this tribe. Look in Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 18. Deuteronomy 33, 18. So Jacob said, hey, dwelling, you're going to be a dwelling by the sea. And he didn't know what that meant, and neither did the descendants. We've been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. What are you talking about? So here's Moses. Genesis, or sorry, Deuteronomy 33, verse 18 says, And Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tent. So obviously these brothers are very close. They was always prophesied together. Zebulun and you're going out, Issachar and your tents, and they shall call the peoples to the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hidden in the sand. So what happens here is Moses, prophetically with the Holy Spirit, agrees with Jacob, who prophesied years ago, right? And he tells them where they're going to be. And, and then Joshua would, would come along and they would cast lots. Now, again, this is all by the Holy Spirit. They said, hey, we're taking the promised land and the Holy Spirit's going to, we're going to cast lots. The Holy Spirit's going to tell us where to put your land. And they would put Zebulun between, I don't know if you can see on the map this purple dot, but it was between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. And it would be in this northern corridor uh, this line, if you kind of look in Israel, there's kind of a mountain range, and there's this big valley, and we call it the Jezreel Valley, and it goes pretty much from Jerusalem uh, all the way up into the, the uh, Galilee, and this big, huge valley. But Zebulun would be in this part, and what happens is they get in this valley, become, becomes a trading place between the two seas. And isn't it cool just how God, I mean, nobody plans this. You know, your, your dad prophesies when, you, when he dies. Your descendants, hundreds and hundreds of years later, get a prophecy from Moses. Then you cast lots, you know, roll the dice, and the Holy Spirit picks out the very place that was prophesied to your ancestors years ago. And so I think in your life you can kind of see how God works things out through the generations and God's word is true. And so this family has held on to God's word. Joshua divides it up. It goes between Sea of Galilee, Mount Carmel, and the Mediterranean. And they're prophesied about this seashore. But even though it becomes this really small area, it ends up being this very fertile place where they can kind of get some of the benefits of the Sea of Galilee and all the prime fishing. And that trade from the Sea of Galilee is going to come down through Zebulun into the rest of the tribes. The trade from the Mediterranean is going to come over. And so Zebulun kind of becomes uh, a trading post. It kind of becomes this place of, of uh, caravans. It kind of becomes this place where people... Um, you know, we have like weighing stations now you know, truck drivers. Think of them as kind of that DOT truck driving station, right? They're weighing things, they're, they're recording things, they're sailing and buying, they're exchanging currency kind of a deal. And so even though they're not on the sea, it all kind of gets prophesied together. Now, why is that important? We're going to talk about that here in just a second. They're on the west, let me say this, they're on the western end of the Jezreel Valley. They're in a, now in a place called the Via Maris, which is by the way of the sea. It's this great trading route. And then you'll talk about, uh, remember the uh, Paul getting blinded on the way to Damascus, all right? 
he was at the end of that route. He, Damascus is way up here on the top. But that big route uh, was always fought over. And this big route, I wish I had a laser on this, but that big route, which we'll see both of these, it's called the Jezreel Valley, but it was this trading route even from Egypt into the northern part of Lebanon. And we know that trading route by a different name today. Anybody know what it is? It's called the Jezreel Valley here. But today, you might know it as the Valley of Armageddon. And it's one of the most contested valleys ever in the history of the world because it holds key military position, it holds key trading position, and it's enormous. I wish I I didn't get the chance to put my picture up here. I actually got to go to the the valley uh, years ago, and uh, Beth and I went there, and it's just enormous. Even though it's a little bitty spot, you can really fit a million people, you know, walking through that. And, it, and for years, there's even a place just south of Zebulun called Megiddo, which is where we get the name Har Megiddo, Armageddon. And there's a town just south of it in Manasseh. And uh, in that place, it's a, it's a fort. And that fort has been rebuilt out of dozens and dozens and dozens of times because so many battles have gone through that place. So here we are in Zebulun. Let me talk to you about what happened then in the military side. All right, so uh, like most of Israel, Zebulun, man, they get into this land. They don't, nobody in Israel drives out all the, the Canaanites, so they have to have war for, for a long time. And look in Judges chapter 4, verse 6, because actually a lot of battles ended up happening in Zebulun because of its location. So Zebulun gets there. We don't know a whole lot about them, but they're supposed to be these great trading routes. They're smart people. They're by the sea. They're into numbers and trade. But, man, don't you know the enemy attacks? Canaanites come, and God raises up a woman named Deborah. How many people know the story of Deborah? Right? All right, so God raises up a a lady named Deborah. She's the first female judge. She's a prophetess. And she calls the people to fight. In Judges chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, she prophesies to the general of Israel, Barak, and she says uh, that you need to muster up 10,000 men. Who are you going to muster up? Men of Naphtali and Zebulun. And Zebulun is going to help you fight Sisera, this Canaanite general. And God would do this awesome thing, and he would rout Sisera's army. Sisera would flee, and he'd go to this lady's tent. And if you know the weird rated R story, she hammers his head through with a tent peg. Okay, you know. But, but that, that happened because Zebulun was a character of a people who called, they, when God had a call, they answered. When God said to fight, now they're fighting in their land for their land, God used them and and they would defeat this whole army. And Deborah would write a song and look one chapter over, Judges 5, 13. I told you we're digging. We're digging. uh, Judges 5, 13, it says, Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. So Deborah's singing about the victory. From Ephraim... There were those whose roots were in Amalek. And after you, Benjamin, with your peoples from Manasseh, rulers came down, and from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. Somebody else might have a different word there. Anybody else have something in your translation that says different? What does it say? The staff of office. Anybody else have another thing? The commander's staff. What do you have? The pen of the rider. Okay, so all of those are correct. We don't really know what it means. But the best translation, perhaps, in understanding is it's the secretaries of war. So you think of they became 
officers. You think if a, a person who was good at handling trade and numbers and weighing things and changing and exchanging things, they were smart. Not only were they warriors, but they were smart. And so when the call came, apparently Zebulun not only fought fiercely, but they became officers, right? They wrote orders. They, they handled the delegation of things. They became secretaries of war. They handled the pen. They drew up commissions. They camped at account. They were probably skilled in the art of war, somebody says. And so Deborah sings, and in Judges 5, 18, she sings about all these tribes that did not respond to the call. But here's what she says of Zebulun, Judges 5, 18. Zebulun is a people who jeopardize their lives to the point of death, Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. So not a whole lot is sung about these people. Not a whole lot is known about these people. But when we do know about them, we see they were willing to risk all for the cause of a godly battle. You know, the call of God, to answer this call of God, it says that they risked all. Now, there's not a whole lot of people in your life, probably you can say that about this, and man, that person will risk all for me uh, when it comes to things happening. So you think of the character. Let's go down a little bit further. Look in Judges 6.34. So they plunge everything into battle. That's their character. Then Gideon calls just a few years later. Gideon calls in Judges 6.34, and it says Zebulun also is one of the tribes who answered the call to fight in the Jezreel Valley again against the Midianites and Amalekites. Then if you flip way over in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 33, uh, David, now we've gone through the Judges, and all the Judges come and go, and now finally Saul has become king, and he, he dies, and David becomes king, and he sets up a, a place in Hebron and Judah. All right? So Hebron, he sets up Hebron. That's where his capital is going to be. And when he becomes king, guess who was there? It says in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 33, And of Zebulun there were 50,000 who went out to battle. Now remember, these guys at the beginning of their story were only 57,400 men. So almost, and we think maybe they got up to 60-something. So almost every man who was able for war left their home in Zebulun, traveled down to the bottom of the country, and mustered with David, God's chosen. Think about that. And here's what it says about them. They were expert in war with all weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks, verse 38, All these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all of Israel, and the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. The New King James says, stout-hearted. That is the single-minded man. What does James say about a double-minded man? That he is unstable in all his ways, right? And so, here's this... Look, think of the character of this tribe, and how does it apply to us today? Here's a people who is not well known, they're not out in the spotlight, but man, when you call, and when God calls, they are there. They're not just there with their whole hum mentality, they're there bringing their skills, their education. When God calls and sets himself up as king or sets up a king, almost every able-bodied man traveled the bottom of the country, left their homes and families to stand with the man of God, and it says that they were skilled in war. They were Able, it says, I like this, it says they were able to keep ranks, meaning they could respond to authority and give authority. They were stout-hearted. 
It says they were of one mind with the other tribes. And so they were loyal. Good. I'm just thinking about, man, this is a good people. If I want to know, I want to know somebody from Zebulun. That's just the kind of person you want to have as a friend, like on your team. Man, you want to have one of these kind of people who are just like, that dude is going to have my back any day, any time I call. And man, when church needs a volunteer, they're going to give it 110%. And their whole family is going to, it's not just going to be one of them. It's the whole family is going to be in. And then Hezekiah calls. I love, these guys are just always answering the call. Hezekiah calls. Second Chronicles 30, verse 11. A couple chapters back, over. Hezekiah calls. The whole northern kingdom now, now think about this. This is really good. The whole northern kingdom has fallen into idolatry. So only from Benjamin, which is that light blue color. So Judah, Benjamin, and Simeon has disappeared into Judah. They don't even, you know, God's curse on them was they would just kind of fall into nothingness. So Simeon gets absorbed by Judah. Benjamin and Judah are only ones staying loyal to the house of David. The whole northern tribe has followed into uh, Baal worship. They set up their own idol and temple. They follow a golden calf again and everything. But Hezekiah, God's king of Judah, comes, and man, he's praying for revival. Now, he had his own issues too, but he has a heart to come back to God. And Hezekiah sends, he's starting to reform the southern kingdom. He cleansed the temple. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, he calls for a national Passover. But he's not just calling for Judah to have a national Passover. He sends riders into the northern uh, fallen away tribes. I got to get this. It's two countries. He, he sends riders out of his country into a country who has fallen away from God and says, Hey, come to our revival services. Come to this revival. We're, we're, we're going to have a revival. We're coming back to God. I know you're up there in your own country. You've got your own temple. You've got your own priest. You've left everything, God. You even ripped your own Bible. What happened? You've fallen into all these pigs. But, but we're cleaning the temple of God. We're wiping the church clean. We're getting back to the Bible. We're dusting the cobwebs off the pews. We're getting the altars lacquered. We're about to have the biggest Passover we've ever seen. Why don't you come? And it says there, that the kingdom laughed at them. People laughed at them and ridiculed them and shunned them off. But, verse, 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 11 says, Some from Asher, Manasseh, and guess who? Zebulun, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And I believe, personally, I believe personally, I believe they stayed. I don't know that for a fact. But I believe that when Later on, that whole ten tribes of the north would be caught up into exile. There were people from Zebulun and almost, I think, every tribe who were faithful to God, came down and joined the tribe of Judah, uh, and stayed true. And those guys that day experienced true revival. They repented, they left their homes, came down to another country, worshipped the Lord on a Passover, found God again. And then some people think that one of those people who came out of that years and years later would be a guy by the name of Jonah. And uh, sources would say he's from the tribe of Zebulun. Now, he's got his issues too, right? But here's the other side. So think of this tribe, these character of a people. They're the known names. Anytime somebody calls up an army for help for the cause of Christ or God, they respond. They don't just respond. They bring their talents, their skills, their ability. They come out in full force. Everybody, guns blaring, right? 
And then when everyone else around them has fallen away and God pricks their heart to come back to revival, they answer. They're faithful. They're loyal. They're dependent. They're single-minded. They're all in. And then one guy steps on the scene years and years later, and there would be this prophecy about his birth. And you probably have heard this guy before. His name's Jesus. Um, but in Matthew 13, or Matthew 4, verse 13, here's what it says that Jesus did. He left Nazareth, Nazareth. He came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. And it says, In the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, which is what Jacob prophesied, beyond the Jordan, in the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Zebulun was the first place Jesus Christ preached the gospel. Isn't that crazy? A no name. But when, you, when God looks down, He's not looking for the best speaker and the best pastor and all these other kind of things. He's looking for faithful, dependable, loyal, single-minded people that when He calls, you say, Yes, Lord, I am all in. Everything I got. You get my education, my skills, my money, my hobbies, my family. We go all in. And Lord, when you call a revival, we're going to be there, Lord, and we're going to worship you, and we're turning away from the things of this world. And I don't need reputation. I don't need notoriety. I don't need any of that stuff. But they say, God, we're going to be loyal. We're going to be faithful. We're going to be single-minded. Some things I can get out of these guys is I can think about those quiet, humble, diligent, loyal Christians who are yet, though, secret prayer warriors for God. They're not flashy, but I know that in their secret times, they are some powerhouses for the Lord. You don't think of, when you think about warrior, you think of Judah the lion, you know. But here's Zebulun, man. Zebulun is right behind Judah, leading the presence of God through the wilderness time. He's the hidden no-name, but he's going to have your back. He's fierce as Judah was, but he's not the limelight. And man, churches are built on people from Zebulun. The church is built on that because it's those secret uh, Christians who are... uh, God is blessing them. It says He blessed them with fertile land. He gave them skills and ability, and they use that skill and ability. He uses their position. And look where He puts them. He puts them in the middle of Armageddon. Right there, in the middle of it. Not only to enjoy the fertile part of it, but He puts them in a place where many battles happen. Why? Because He knows they'll always answer the call. And it may be that God is putting you and your family in situations and certain circumstances because He knows that, man, you are going to answer the call for your family or for your situation. And I think about people who need the... uh, Nehemiah, he says that, You know, we needed to fill the gap in the wall. The walls had fallen down. He puts people, watchmen on the wall. And Zebulun is kind of like that. It's like, man, there's going to be many battles over this territory, and God is looking for a faithful remnant. He'll say, man, they're always going to answer when it's time to fight. And I think God's looking this last day and age for people who are saying, when the battle comes, man, I'm on my knees in prayer. 
I'm fighting. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not the pastor, and I'm not you know, the worship leader. I'm not all these people in front. I'm not even maybe a Sunday school teacher, but I am on my knees fighting right behind Judah. Isn't that good? Amen. That's Zebulun. I love Zebulun. He's single-minded. He used the gifts God gave. He risked all to answer the call. It even says that about Barnabas and Paul in Acts 15. It says that Barnabas and Paul were men who had risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans tells us that we are to be uh, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service, right? That we would be that dwelling place. And Zebulun be, was really, they were a dwelling place of ships, but they really became a dwelling place for the presence of God. But I love that. I love that no-name battles. Now let's look at, look at his brother real quick, because we, uh, we split half and half here. Issachar. Issachar is his brother. Issachar uh, gets the land right next to him. So let's look at that. Uh, go back to me for a few seconds. Genesis 30, verse 17. Let's look at what the same prophecy said about his brother. Any questions on Zebulun? Really quick, before I go on. We'll have some discussion here in a little bit. But I want to make sure I got all that. Any, we're good? All right, Issachar. He's Jacob's fifth son of Leah. He's the ninth son in total. And she said, God has given me my hire... Because I have given my maiden to my husband, and she called his name Issachar, which means hire, or there is a reward. Uh, there's a reward for him, or there is a hire for him. Uh, and he becomes the donkey. The donkey. Over here on this, the symbol is the donkey. His stone was a yellow-green topaz. And Jacob, in Genesis 49, flip over a few, Genesis 49 Jacob would prophesy about this son that his mom had called the hire or the purchase or the reward. Genesis 49, verse 14 says, Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between the sheepfolds or the burdens. When he saw that a resting place was good and the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. All right, so he, he was symbolic of a donkey. Uh, and again, in modern day, uh, the only people that want to be called donkeys are Democrats. And it's not only not a good terminology, we don't go around calling people donkeys, but in the ancient times, that's like having a Ford truck. You know what I mean? It's, it's something good, right? That's what I mean by that. Okay, whatever. If, I don't care. USA made truck. How about that, all right? I won't be prejudiced. He's, he's sturdy. He's stout. He's reliable. He's built for tough. You know, I mean, he's like a rock, you know, Chevy, whatever. But he, he's sturdy. And so he's, uh, he's like a strong donkey. He's valuable. He's a servant. He's carrying heavy loads. And think about who came on a donkey. Jesus, right? Jesus, the Messiah, would come on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. And it says that he would bear burdens, or he would be set between two burdens. Now, a burden can really mean, in literal sense, a saddlebag. So the picture here is of a donkey bearing two saddlebags, all right? And that's, uh, that's uh, Issachar. Actually, uh, on Sunday, Lord willing, uh, we, we're gonna, next Sunday we're going to talk about a little about what it means to be a burden bearer. But burden can mean saddlebag, and so he says, it's a donkey. You're like a donkey, son, with two saddlebags. And I'm just like... Thanks, Dad. That's the last words I want to hear from you as you die. Son, you're just like a donkey with two saddlebags. But that's it's actually a compliment in this day, okay? I'm not going to tell that to my kids, hopefully, when I die. All right, so the tribe of Issachar, just like, just like their brother, they're going to number 
about uh, 54,000, which is a lot at Sinai. They with Zebulun and Judah, they're going to lead from the east gate uh, and lead the presence of God, uh, the, the holy holies, into the wilderness, all right? And they're going to lead out in front of Moses. And Moses will bless them in Deuteronomy 33, verse 18. Okay, I told you we're going to be jumping around a little bit. But just follow with me. Moses is going to bless them. They get to the end of all this time. And again, just like Zebulun, there are no names. We don't hear anything bad or good about them in the wilderness. They don't hear anything bad or good about his brother, as a, uh, Issachar, as a son of Jacob or as a man. We just know he had kids and they became a tribe. But they had a place of honor with Moses, Aaron, and Judah in front of the eastern part And so Moses blesses them in Deuteronomy 33, verse 18. He says, Of Zebulun, he says, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going forth, and Issachar in your tents. Now, you're going forth. Remember, Issachar is the trading. But then does he say, what about... He says the opposite of Issachar. He says, in your tents. They will call people to the mountain. They'll offer righteous sacrifices. They will draw out the abundance of the sea. So there's Zebulun. And in the hidden treasures of the sand. So if... Zebulun is the sea, Issachar is the land. We used to have this guy when I was in the, you know, the 90s growing up, it was Captain Planet, and it was earth, wind, fire. You know, I don't know if you remember that. But he's kind of like his, his one brother is the sea maritime guy. He's trading between the two sea posts. Now his brother, he's going to be the farmer, the rural country boy. He's going to be the one that settles down into the pastures, He's going to dwell in tents. He's going to find the hidden treasures in the earth. All right? And so here's what happens. That's the prophecy. Joshua begins to cast lots in Joshua 19, verse 17. And he gets the land that's very fertile, and it's on the very east end of the same valley, the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Armageddon. And what happens is, if you look at his land, he's going to be on one side, there's going to be a mountain called Mount Tabor, and on the lower part, it's going to be in the hills of Galilee. And there's going to be another mountain at the bottom called Mount Gilboa. Now, what did we say that he was a donkey between? Two burdens. And if you look at the land, which I don't have mountains on this one, but Issachar literally is set between two mountains, possibly illustrating two burdens. So there's that, that dark red piece right there un- underneath the Sea of Galilee. And so here we go, just the, the one, just, it all, let's say this. Sometimes we read through things like that, and it just kind of, okay, blah, 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 blah. But to me, if you take it, take it back for a second and think about it, over hundreds of years, God has confirmed his word through his father, through Moses, through the casting of lots, and through the real life. Think about how true God's word is. He's faithful. And man, when he says something... If it doesn't come to pass then, it's going to come to pass either in the next generation or the next or the next. It's not going to be a what if or a maybe. And when he says something, man, it doesn't just come through in the natural in that one sense. Hey, son, you're like a donkey with two burdens. You're just a good, hard-working man. But his children's children would find a fertile farmland between two mountains. And they would work donkeys. They would work the land. And just the the... The amazing thing of God's word in that sense, okay? So here you go. There's the territory. Zebulun and Issachar, again in the valley of Armageddon. Direct source of trade. They're through the highway of Israel. And here's the deal. Guess what town was in Issachar? Give you a hint. It starts with an N. Nazareth. 
Nazareth is where Jesus, not is born, but is raised. So, Issachar raises the Messiah. You ever thought, why did Jesus, and, or why did God send Jesus to a rural country area? You ever notice that all of Jesus' parables and everything is about farmers and seeds and sowers and planting and reaping? And Where did he, was he raised? Issachar. And what did he say about Issachar? Issachar, you'll dwell in your tents, you'll deal with, you'll find the fertile place of the soil. You're at the end of the uh, valley of Armageddon. So these people, they become faithful to God's word. In a sense, even years later, they become kind of apocalyptic. They're always waiting for the Messiah. They're looking for that day of the Lord's return. But their country, country people, you, we all know, some of the best people in the world now, but we're, we're simple and true to the things of God. You find more faithful people in rural areas. Do you notice this? Why is that? Where cities are built, you find religion dies. But where country people live, you find a dedication to God's Word. You find that peace where people can get along with God and pray and the business of life slows down. You're able to think and you're happier. You meditate uh, on the Word of God more. And this becomes kind of the character of Issachar. And here we go again, real quick, through the same thing. Deborah calls and who answers with their brother Zebulun? Judges 5.15. Issachar says that Issachar rushed into the valley at the heels of Barak. Meaning that when the general said, let's go boys, not only did Zebulun and, and all these others answer, but Issachar, it says that he, they were right, by, they, could, they could taste the dust, literally, off of the heels of Barak. They were fiercely right behind him when he called for, the, the, uh, called for a battle of the Lord. Then look, this is probably the best part about this, and we'll wrap up here in a second. Judges 10, verse 1. You've got to look at these. Judges 10, verse 1, and then kind of put your finger in 1 Chronicles 7, 2. Okay? Judges 10, verse 1, and then flip over to 1 Chronicles 7, verse 2. I want to tell you about a man who's from Issachar. His name is Tola. Okay? And again, no-name people are so important to God. We may think, I don't have any skills, I don't have any talents, I don't have anything to offer, I'm just one of these people that sit on the pew. That's fooey. God uses people who are no-names all the time. And here's one of them. In a day of apostasy, when people are falling away in this area, okay, here comes a man, his name is Tola. We don't know anything about him. There's only a couple verses or a verse about him in the whole entire Bible. But he's from Issachar. Now, again, remember what kind of place is it? You're at the end of Armageddon. You're in a fertile place. You're faithful. Your people have always been on the heels of, of battle. You're alone with God. You're slowed down, slow pace. And you're a no-name. But when God needed a man for the entire country, think about it. It's kind of one of those Moses moments. Who shall I send? And nobody wants to go. Where's Judah? How come nobody's rising up for Judah? What about Manasseh and other Manasseh and Ephraim? All these great places where, you know, Reuben, you're the firstborn son. No, here's the, the what, what, what number of son was uh, Issachar? We said he's um, the ninth son in total. The ninth son in total. A guy from the ninth son in one of the smallest areas in the rural country bumpkin out in the middle of nowhere says... Lord, if you can use anything, you can use me. The whole nation's gone up and down. 
We're falling into apostasy. Canaanite people are robbing and pillaging and raping and all that. Here's this little country guy. But man, he's fierce for the Lord. He stands up and Judges 1 and 2. It says, Tola, a man of Issachar, judged Israel for how long? 23 years. And he was a brave leader. We don't get anything out about him, but look what happens in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 2. For 23 years, this man, out of the middle of nowhere, leads the entire tribes of peace for 23 years. And he goes and he has sons, and they have sons. And look what is said about his kids and his grandkids. It says, The sons of Tola were mighty men of valor in their generations. And it goes on down, it says further, that from his sons, families came mighty men's of valor. Now there's something to be said, and I think it's for men and women, that even though I'm a no-name and from nowhere, but when I stand up to answer the call of God and I lead my family in righteousness, it can make a difference in the nation. What God can do with one person... He'll say, yes, Lord. And that man, I don't know anything about that man. We'll only meet him in heaven. But he stood up in the middle of nowhere and led the entire country for 23 years, led it so well that he led his family in the righteousness of God. He created sons who were mighty men of valor who also had sons who were mighty men of valor. And if you don't have anything in the Bible written about you at all, and this is the one thing God's going to... Man, that'd be an awesome thing. Right? That I led the Lord, I led the nation in the things of God, and my children became mighty men and women of God. That's pretty sweet. If you want to have a legacy, that's a good legacy. And, and like, God, I don't need a whole chapter. I don't need a book written about me. I don't need my face on a billboard. But when it does say something about me, it says I was faithful. And what does God say to us when we get up to heaven? We hope that He says to us, He says, Well done, good and faithful. Not popular, not successful, not good-looking, not a good speaker. How many Bible verses? Good and faithful. And if I can be faithful and teach my children and my children's children to be faithful, that they will stand up for the things of God, despite the entire nation falling away from God. But me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Right? Man, and there's, this, is, this is the nuggets. Why I love the Bible. Man, there's so much in here. Just a, two verses that says, man... Everybody else is falling away, but me, I'm going to serve the Lord. And what God can do with people from nowhere. And like Zebulun in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, it says, Of the sons of Issachar, when David became king at Hebron, just like their brother, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do, their chiefs were 200 and their kinsmen were at their command. That's the last thing we hear about Issachar, and I'll wrap it up with that. Not only did we find men just popping up from Issachar who are righteous and, man, just fierce for the Lord. It says when David was installed in Hebron, not only did they join Zebulun, their brother, which is a little bigger, it says that when they showed up, they were known as this. This is the reputation of those country guys, country folk. They understood the times. Where are they located? Where was their valley? The valley of Armageddon, the end of the valley of Armageddon. If that's not a picture of what the last day's church should look like, 
in these last days, here's what I think. I think there's going to be a holy revival. The Bible says in the last days, he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. We know that began in Joel chapter 2, prophesies it. And Peter says this is the beginning of that day. The end of days is beginning in Acts chapter 2. And, and the, the Holy Spirit's being poured out. And I think that revival is continued from generation to generation on those who would be holy and remnant. And I think you find it even now. You look across America. We're not seeing massive revivals in the cities so much. But you are seeing pockets of revival break out in rural America all over this nation. It's not making headline news. I, actually, this week I posted about one revival in Georgia that's going on right now. That's in a small town in the suburbs of Atlanta. Nobody, it's not on the news, it's not making headlines, but they've seen over 800 people in just the last few months come to their church of 350. Just getting healed, delivered, set free, filled with the Holy Spirit. God's moving. But it's in rural places like this where people say, God, I know the whole nation is kind of falling away, but Lord, we're going to be righteous, we're going to be prayer warriors, we're going to be faithful. And like these guys, when the king was being established, think about this, when the king was coming, they were ready. They understood the times they lived in. And when they saw that it's time for the king to reign, they met him at Hebron, and when they showed up, it said, those are the guys that understand the signs of the time. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He says, guys, you could understand the weather, you know all the signs, you know when the sun turns red, what's going to happen, but you don't know the signs of the time. What did he say about Jerusalem when he wept over it? He says, you did not know the hour of your visitation. And he wept over it. And what did he say to the disciples even the night that he was going to be betrayed? He says, guys, won't you pray just an hour with me? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You don't have spiritual discernment. You don't know that Judas is about to show up and, and the time of my execution is at hand. You have no spiritual awareness. And something about Issachar in there being alone with God maybe in the, perhaps the reality that we are always living in spiritual warfare. We're in the Valley of Armageddon. You stay on your toes. I'm alone with God. Life's at a slower pace. And I recognize, man, I'm living at the end of the world. Think about that. They were. The last battle in the world will be fought there. I'm living at the end. And if we could just get a hold of this tonight, both of them, Zebulun and Issachar. Both are great illustrations for the last day's church. And all of this is not in my notes. I'm just Holy Spirit speaking. Seriously, we are living in that last day. And if we could say, God, whenever you call, I answer. Lord, I'm in my prayer closet fighting these battles. And God, when, I, when you say yes, Lord, I say yes, I'm all in. And God, I'm always ready for the return of the King. I recognize the signs of the times. And one of the ways I'm going to recognize the sign of the time is I know I'm always in battle. Even though I'm slow, I'm a farmer, I'm just focusing on life, I got a job, I got a house, I got a mortgage, I got to mow my yard, all these things are happening and we got things to do, I got the garden, all that. But I recognize, man, battle can happen at any time. And any time the enemy shows up at my door, man, I am ready, my armor is, I never, I take a plow by day, but my armor is right there by the back door. Because as soon as that enemy comes down that valley, Boom, get the soldier, you know, get the, get, call the boys, get the swords on, let's go. Man, we're ready, we're fierce. And so I think you can be both. I think we can have a life that I'm an a, a oil worker and a teacher and a mechanic and I'm a pastor and wherever, wherever we are, retired, and I got my life, but I'm always aware of the time I live. 
And when God answers, man, I'm quick to pray. I'm quick to fight. I'm quick to defend. And when he says, yes, Lord, and they say, I were calling for revival, we say, we'll be there. Because my life is slowed down enough where I can just be alone with God enough to know. And I know that, man, the day and the place God has put me, even though I'm blessed with the prosperous life that I have, like these guys, they had prosperous lives. They lived in a very fertile place. They had great fishing, great training, great fruit, great produce. America, we can get real sleepy in our nice houses, in our nice cars, and all the things that we do. But these guys, because they knew where they lived, they were always ready to fight. And I think that's a good picture for us to say, Lord, don't let me fall asleep. God, let me respond to revival. Let me keep my armor on, even if I have a pitchfork and a hoe and, a, and a, you know, my tiller in my garden. But God, I want to bear burdens. I want to have godly wisdom and discernment. I want to be a mighty man of valor. Uh, in these last days. And if anything, God, and if it's not the end yet, maybe we're just fighting some battles and then our next generation is going to fight some battles like Tola. He fought his battle for 23 years, made a stand for the Lord, but he had to train his children. Say, this might, I thought this was going to be the last day. But you know what? Apparently we got some more battles to fight. And uh, that's where we are. We don't know the hour of our visitation, but we want to have discernment that God... We're fighting some heavy battles today in the American church. Not only the battles of slumber, but, you know, we're, you know, again, we're just one or a few presidents away from many major rights stripped from the church. We're there. We are there. And uh, we need to be raising up a mighty generations of Tolas, of Issachars and Zebulons to say, God, man, we're, gonna, we're in this fight. We're in this fight. Amen? Amen.